Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. You just dug into that delicious bowl of ice cream when it strikes. A sharp, stabbing pain in the middle of your skull. 30 seconds later, it's gone. You've just been hit with brain freeze. Brain freeze happens when something really cold touches the soft palate on the roof of your mouth, which causes your blood vessels to suddenly constrict. That means that warm blood starts to flow through them as soon as they warm up, which causes dilation, which causes the receptors to send a pain signal to your brain. The message then goes through the nerve that's responsible for feeling in your face, so your brain thinks that there's pain coming from your forehead, which is what causes that brief but intense headache sensation. The cool thing is you can turn it off by drinking some warm or hot water. It turns off almost instantly. We have a great interview today with Michael Vassar, the president of the Singularity Institute. He joins us today to talk about how you can harness critical thinking to overcome problems in all parts of your life. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Now we're going to move on to our exclusive interview with Michael Vassiter. Michael Vassiter is a futurist, activist, entrepreneur, and the president of the Singularity Institute. He advocates safe development of new technologies for the benefit of mankind. 
He's held positions with Aon, the Peace Corps, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology. He was also a founder and chief strategist at SirGroovy.com, an online music licensing firm. He's co-authored papers on the risks of advanced molecular manufacturing with Robert Freitas, and has written Corporate Cornucopia for the Center of Responsible Nanotechnology Task Force. Michael joins us to talk about the Singularity Institute and how you can use rational thought to take advantage of modern technology without undue risk. He'll also share his thoughts on both enlightenment science and scholarly science, both of which you'll learn about in the interview. If you're curious about how to balance the benefits of technology, say like biohacking, with the drawbacks for maximum performance, this show is the one for you. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey Dave, nice to meet you. So Michael, tell us about the Singularity Institute. Okay, the Singularity Institute was founded over a decade ago by Elias Ryudkinsky in response to concerns about the risks of artificial intelligence, which Bill Joy had been writing on Wired magazine about very recently. Ray Kurzweil wrote a book in 1999 called Age of Spiritual Machines. And this book is a very good introduction to the basic way of thinking that is popular in singularity circles today. It's about the third as long as the singularity is near, so if you don't want to spend 700 pages, it's probably the place to go. There's another book coming out pretty soon, The Singularity Hypothesis, from Oxford University Press and the Future of Humanity Institute that should also be worth looking at. Okay. The Singularity Institute was founded because of these concerns, and Eliezer Yudkowsky, its founder, basically started looking into how to develop artificial intelligence that would not, you know, automatically destroy you if you actually made it work. And this is, like, the first problem people think about when they think about artificial intelligence. And it sounds like a really stupid, stereotype, anthropomorphizing problem, because, you know, you shouldn't say, well, something, if it's something really a machine, it wouldn't really have drives to exert itself or dominance and any of these other motivations that cause conflict between humans for the most part. But really, these sorts of drives, etc., are produced by the environment in response to actual features of the environment, such as there being finite resources and different goals that can compete to produce those, to consume those resources. There's a level at which it sounds obvious, then a level at which it's obviously anthropomorphic, and then another level at which it no, it's obvious, actually, that building machine intelligences is extremely dangerous. Kuchowski spent about five years working on this by himself, and then he brought in some more people to work on it, and then some of those people built a conference, and then I expanded the conference, took it to both coasts, set up some side conferences, and... Along the way, the word singularity became much better known, and the pool of people who were focused on this particular issue became pretty depleted, but the pool of people involved in developing and promoting awareness of really advanced technologies that could transform the world in one way or another uh, continued to grow, and we invited over 100 of them at this point to speak at Singularity Summit. We also decided we needed to recruit more people who could think about the sorts of strategic issues we're talking about in a rigorous, careful manner. And so we increased, uh, we built a rationality critical thinking training community called Less Wrong, which 
we did in conjunction with the Future of Humanity Institute, and which has a sequ- a set of interwoven posts called the Less Wrong Sequences, which are extremely good for taking people from a certain already fairly high level of critical vigor to a level of critical vigor which is actually adequate to make progress on difficult questions where our emotions tend to be strong and the other tends to be weak. So you're you're basically teaching people how to think, which is yes. a precursor to being able to intelligently decide how to deploy artificial intelligence. Yeah, or intelligently deal with any very advanced uh, and do anything that has high stakes really. Since, yeah, we're teaching people how to think more rigorously than they had previously been able to, so that it's possible to think effectively about how high-stakes situations, which don't have strong pre-existing uh, strong precedents for. I think that's a, a noble goal and one that would be fed a lot of people who are looking at, at upgrading themselves with uh, with some of the technologies we talk about on the show. Uh, I mean, I, I've used you know, lasers and, you know, infrared LEDs and electrical currents across my brain. And I have for more than 10 years, but um, I like to think that I've been doing it with a a reasonable degree of safety, but it's certainly high stakes. You don't want to fry your brain. Um, So this ability to look at risk from a a rational perspective versus a a fear-based perspective, I think is, is fundamentally important. What would happen today if, if say what you call an intelligence explosion occurred, what would it mean for people listening to the show? I I mean, I, I think it's fairly difficult to talk about what happens if an intelligence explosion occurs. To a really significant degree, what we mean by intelligence at the Singularity Institute, we, could, we can also call, if we want to be more technical, optimization power. You know, the tendency to cause things to be one way rather than another. The thing is that it, it's... People think in stories. There's no story here. Everything just ends. You know, it it really isn't a scenario like The Matrix or Terminator. It's not a scenario like Hell or whatever. No, it it's just systems modify themselves and other systems modify themselves and other systems in a way that, you know, doesn't stop and the world isn't there anymore very, very soon. So, yeah, it's probably better to talk about smaller sorts of global catastrophic risks, ones that are more concrete, and just think about intelligence explosions by analogy for the basic problem, okay? Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. All right. can you tell me the difference between, say, an artificial intelligence explosion and, say, smarter rats that suddenly evolve and aren't artificial but smarter, are intelligent? That's a great idea. So I think great, smarter rats would be a extraordinarily dangerous thing. And to some degree, those can be made already. There is a breed of rat called Hobby J, which was produced by taking what was already the smartest type of rat, lab rat and increasing the activity of one of the neurotransmitter receptors, I think NR2B in its brain, which is a glutamate transporter. And this greatly improved its memory, increased its speed at unlearning as well as learning, um, increased a number of other cognitive processes, which uh, 
I measure it as well as people can measure rat intelligence. There was a derivative of a similar work that had been done on a mouse about seven years earlier. Anyway, that's not smart enough to uh, be really threatening. Rats aren't starting from that high baseline. But one could very easily imagine, given the amount that rats have caused, the amount of trouble that rats have caused for humans over the years, with this, with the level of cognitive traits that they have, that if they became a lot more intelligent, this could be very threatening. Now, if you talk about rats being superhumanly intelligent, once again, I don't think it's really a matter of threatening. I think we would just be fucked. You know, <laughs> rats can increase in population by an order of magnitude every year, fairly easily. And they're much smaller than we are, you know, and they're highly adaptable. It doesn't really seem at all realistic that it would be possible to root out all of a, you know, population of rats that could be orders of magnitude smarter than us and could probably utilize our culture and technologies to some degree for their own purposes. You know, I would expect, I would basically see no no possibility at all that that could um, actually work out well for humanity. So the Singularity Institute looks at intelligence explosions, both, say, biological, other species, as well as artificial, and you sort of look at well, planning I don't both think scenarios? Many people, I don't think many people actually expect a biological intelligence explosion. A... A machine intelligence explosion seems a lot more likely for a variety of reasons. First of all, the situation where I was talking about with rats would not be an intelligence explosion. We would just be fucked from smart rats, even if they didn't explode. I mean, even if they didn't self-modify themselves and become recursively smarter repeatedly. Okay, that's, so that's the difference. You're looking for recursively smarter things. Within well, that's the thing that we tend to be focused on in terms of our research. I'm interested in global catastrophic risk, whether it intel involves intelligence or not. So probably the easiest way to destroy the world right now, as far as I can tell, is to would be to something like build a bacterium with all of the chiral, that is, three-dimensional uh, mirror image symmetrical molecules yes. uh, reversed in their chirality. You know, and if this bacterium was autotrophic, if it absorbed carbon from its atmosphere rather than from living things and didn't basically need enzymes to survive, it would be able to reproduce even without food that it could eat nothing would be able to eat it because it would not be reactive with the enzymes of other organisms. And I would expect that such a thing could expand in population unchecked and produce a ridiculous, you know, ecological disaster. And the you biological know, equivalent of, of gray goo. Okay. Yes. Only well, that gray goo is really difficult to make. And um, reverse carbobacteria would, okay. Great goo would be difficult to make the way you know, to to a point where really I can't see any possible way in which it could exist in the next decade. Well, reverse carbobacteria are something that people could basically make net. So that that's the probably the, the top of mind biological directed threat that, that you see right now. Well let's let's take a step back and talk about the differences and similarities between enlightenment science and scholarly science and, and sure. look at are they mutually exclusive? 
this is an idea I came up with a couple years ago. So the basic thought is that the thing that, okay, one thing that became obvious when I started running the summit is that people who are doing really radical and revolutionary science are able to attract a fair amount of attention, are often able even to establish themselves as credible in the sense of acquiring good PhDs, academic posts, etc. But they seem to have an extraordinarily great level of difficulty attracting funds to their work, getting other people to take up similar lines of research, etc. And looking at what the scientific community does, almost all of what it does seems to be basically repetition of other experiments without any really relevant changes, just very slight variations that aren't really intended to provide any new information. So the simplest way to put that is almost all of what the scientific community does and almost all of what receives funding seems to be basically fiddling around with lab equipment, not doing science. And as I became more aware of that, I was thinking more about what we mean by science. So how this could come about. And one of the things that occurred to me is that people will have differing opinions about science or about any concept if they generalize that concept from different data. So one set of data that someone could you know, plausibly generalize a concept and call that concept science from is science fiction movies. Another set of data that someone could possibly generalize science from is doing lab work in a undergraduate and then a graduate setting on someone else's work a project where the textbook tells you effectively what you're supposed to see and then you claim to see it. Now these are both not what I would call science, but probably far more people generalize their concept of science from the first of those things than the second. And then there's a third thing, which is the things that are talked about in the history of science. That's the third thing that you could generalize the concept of science from, is the thing that Newton and Archimedes and Francis Bacon and Galileo originated. And that, you know, every entry or every other entry prior to the 1950s or 1940s in any given history of science will be ex- exclusively about. I have a talk on the subject that I gave at the Singularity Summit in 2010 that might be more clear because it's, you know, prescriptive. But I, I would like to know how this is coming through. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm getting it. Um, when you mention enlightenment, you're actually talking about the enlightenment period of history versus yes. sort of the more modern things. And back then, people were very experimentalist focused and sort of, I, I observe something, so let me measure it and figure out what's going on versus more modern things where we expect to observe something, so we measure it again and make sure it is what we thought it was. Yeah, that seems like a good way to put it. Yeah. So I, end up build, I ended up creating this theory or a model where there are really like a half dozen different things that someone might mean by the word science. And those things have some features in common, but not very much. And the one, most of those things have always existed. Like a really cool question is, typically today, 
educated people used the word science and used the word investigation of how the world works and figuring out what's true and how to do things as basically synonyms. But if that was, but if, if these things are properly synonyms, then you have to say that people had science a thousand years ago when they built cathedrals, and that they had science two thousand years ago when they built aqueducts, etc. But in that case, what is this thing that people are talking about? The scientific revolution in the seventeenth century. You know, it can't be the origin of science because people have been figuring stuff out and using their knowledge to do stuff forever. So if you try to figure out what that thing is, you have something like Popper's, Karl Popper's vision of science, where you go out, look around, try to you know, notice things that surprise you, try to measure them, try to come up with stories about basically mechanical causes for those things. Uh, try to you know develop equations that predict what exactly you're going to see and then test. And that, that way of doing things was not by itself sufficient to cause the scientific revolution. But all of the other components were already in place. There was something that I called scholarship, which was popular in practically every culture ever, but not in our own. There was this thing... Enlightenment science that I just described and that had never existed anywhere before the uh, 18th century, although you had precursors like Archimedes in Greece much earlier. And then you had a number of other things like exploratory data gathering or lab technical work or mechanical engineering and, broadly speaking, craftsmanship that that were... already ubiquitous before the 17th century, but which by themselves did not produce this sort of revolution in knowledge. Sounds, it sounds to me almost like uh, Neil Stevenson had this stuff right when, when he wrote his, his series, um, starting with Quicksilver, about you know, the formation of science back, back in the time he, he was thinking about this. And um, I've certainly been reading some other things about that, and I've, I've often wondered the same thing. You know, how, how did we get to the point now where you know, some people talk about science with a capital S, and it, it's a dogmatic belief versus someone who has an inquisitive belief. And uh, I find that as a biohacker, you know, I, I used to weigh 300 pounds, and you know, the the dogmatic science would say you eat less calories and eat sticks and twigs, and you lose weight. But it didn't work based on you know scientific measurements of you know what did I put in, what's coming out, it's not working. So I changed my approach and experimented and came up with a different thing that works, which includes, you know, a stick of butter a day. So is that an example there of going from... I think so. I think so. Richard, well, yes. Richard Feynman says in one of his quotes that science is the disbelief in the, uh, the disbelief in the authority of experts. And that is reasonably close to, I think, the motto of enlightenment science go out, look around, see what seems to be true, and then check yourself. Make really sure. Try to try to figure out how things, think, how things would be if it wasn't true. You know, and there you've got a good example. We have a extremely questionable set of claims that have sort of the official warrant of the scientific community insofar as there is anything. 
any official, you know, like insofar as the university system says anything official about health and nutrition, it has this set of claims which seem, seem to be extremely questionable. And it seems obvious at this point that while scientists or, and enthusiasts of science, like the skeptical movement or whatever, they talk about how science seeks to uh, correct its errors, etc. The uh, nutritional field, for instance, very clearly does not seek to do so. It's not... Um, its guidelines do not seem responsive to new data in any straightforward manner. And in particular... Its guidelines are totally not responsive to surprising, very unexpected data. Um, one way of thinking about this that I've had some success with is if it uses statistics, if, if it uses statistics and it used statistics a generation ago, it's not science. <laughs> I love that quote. Because really, the, although statistics is incredibly useful, for um, generating and evaluating scientific claims. It's also incredibly easy to automate and turn into a pro forma. And bureaucracies, when they see a way of formalizing what you're doing, tend to insist on it. And then things degenerate into a contest to drunk out more, to you know, pump out more and more uh, bad statistics because no one's actually looking at anything rather other than whether you went through a certain form. Um, another point about statistics is that it permits certain really uh, bad practices from an informational perspective. So what do you call someone who, uh, some, what do you call someone who drops the outliers? A good marketer? In a good lab. Liars out. You know? The idea that you should drop outliers is um, basically the exact opposite of the idea, that you should really pay attention to outliers, which inspired things like, you know, the observations of the perturbations of the orbit of Mercury and the need to use general relativity to explain it. You know, science mostly works by looking for outliers and then trying to figure out new theories that actually predict them. So dropping outliers is almost the opposite of that. And yet it can become uh, entrenched as a standard practice. So this is the sort of thing that I'm talking about when I say um, basically most, I mean, we have all of these data, all of these papers, like John Ioannidis, most published findings are false. And so we're stuck with a situation where people have to do, like you did, their own research in order to solve problems for an N of 1, which is itself really problematic. It would be much better to have a community of people doing the sort of thing you're talking about systematically together, rather than unsystematically organizing through blogs and web, web forums. But I, this is what we've got. I think there's some, some neat stuff happening, particularly with uh, Eri Gentry's work uh, around having you know open, open science and the Cure Together website where we're starting to apply those types of statistical techniques to, to getting enough data from citizen scientists or biohackers like me. 
do you think that's enough or do we need to push this into universities? Well, I tend to think that we don't need to push it into universities because that won't work. I mean, when I think about the old Enlightenment science, and I want to be really cynical, I would say they expanded and succeeded and grew by breaking with the universities. And then once they accumulated enough status that the universities begged them to come back, and from Mr. Change, they went back and the universities didn't actually change. And people have been complaining about the structure of university curricula, etc., since I'm sure long before Adam Smith and Picard. But they certainly complained in, a lot, in lots of ways that are still relevant today. Okay, well, speaking of statistics, let's talk a little bit more about the sexier part of your research, about self-aware machines. Have any actually happened yet? Have any machines or computers become self-aware yet? Self-aware is a really vague term. You can totally build, you probably, in fact, have in your car a computer that takes in information from its environment and uses some simple model and registers information in that model about a variety of systems, including one of the systems being the computer that's doing these analyses. So if you mean simply having, in some sense, a compressed representation of oneself, that's been around forever. If you mean having subjective consciousness similar to that which humans have, then it becomes a borderline unscientific question. You know, when, if one doesn't have a way of probing and figuring out whether something is, you know, like we, there's always the philosophical issues about whether other people are even conscious or whether I was conscious two minutes ago. So, um, the, I could argue possibly for one theory of consciousness or another, but I don't think I should do that on this show right now. To me, the really striking thing about today's AI is that if you were to um, look at something called, say, AIXI, built by a guy named Marcus Hooter, which is an abstract theoretical model, you can prove that this system is given certain unrealistic assumptions, ideal for a certain function. And then it turned out to be possible to look at that, that abstract system and come up with a practical system or a semi-practical system that wasn't constrained in those ways and which showed general intelligence. And there you got the AIXITL Monte Carlo simulation, which basically learned to play Pac-Man on its own with no external information uh, using a fully general uh, reasoning process. And fully general in a sense that humans are not really. So um, we don't, however, that system does not represent itself. So it's definitely not, that system is definitely not self-aware. It doesn't have any data that corresponds to itself internally. Was that helpful or not? Oh, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. But when should people actually expect something like that to occur? Would it be in the next 20 years, the next 100 years? When do you think it would be possible for machines to become to a point where they're more detrimental than they are helpful in terms of their intelligence. Okay, let's separate these issues. I don't expect machines to eventually become more detrimental rather than helpful. I expect 
machines to get better and more useful and better and more useful and better and more useful, and people will keep on improving them in various ways. And then, boom, everyone is dead. You know, it's not like there's going to be a shift as things gradually become resentful and wake up and arise and overthrow their human followers. It's more like there's going to be a shift and a certain expected value calculation that is being performed by the registers of, you know, 500 million different subsystems spread over the economy over a two-day period responds to some news item about the um, spotted owl or whatever and registers that in light of an update to some belief system inspired by this news article or whatever, um, it, it seems that the way to uh, fulfill you, uh, to make people happy, that of the um, options available for making people happy, doing what they say is no longer as promising as trying their DNA in the smiley faces. And um, because the way in which you've interpreted happy involves smiley faces and human DNA. That's actually a great quote. I, I, I really like that. Um, you know, the idea of measuring happy is something, in fact, we have a blog post coming up on that now, that, that you know, applying scientific principles to happiness versus, you know, to genetically hacking it are just sort of different principles. Uh, and I, I think that's an area where science has really struggled um, historically because it's very hard to quantify emotions uh, in a, in a real-time scenario particularly especially when more yeah. than one is happening at the same time. So it, it, it's, 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 it's eluded. It's hard to quantify emotions. It's even harder to quantify what people want. And we don't just want... I mean, that fundamentally, this, the problem here is the what people want problem. You know, it's, this is a problem where we don't know how to ask for what we want. We've been kind of making fun of ourselves for this for thousands of years in fairy tales with the fishermen, the... I don't know, Shoemaker and his wife, or King Midas and his golden touch. But, you know, if someone who's not Aladdin gets wishes in a story, they're going to regret it. That's, uh, that's maybe a, a built-in part of the human condition, at least if you read all those uh, you know, traditional stories. How do we apply that to, say, more modern engineering technologists? And so how do you balance pushing the limits of new technology with the way you restrict those guys. If you assume that you're a guy who's well-funded in a lab and you're trying to solve a problem, you may actually get what you're asking for, even if it's not what you really wanted. Right, that's correct. What's the mechanism that you advocate for allowing those guys to innovate, but without you know, killing us all? Well, I'm extremely skeptical of most policy type mechanisms with the sort of policy systems we have in place right now. The system that I think I would advocate is more like the system that I think you guys would advocate for weight loss, actually. Which is to say, it looks to me like science, it's, it looks to me like the intellectual arguments for being careful and responsible and trying really hard to, to be really cautious about certain advanced technologies. The intellectual arguments are actually quite easy. Everyone who can make really cutting-edge scientific discoveries has more than enough brain power to understand these arguments. And if they don't, it's either because they have a deficient theory of how to process arguments, 
or because they are distracted by other emotional pulls, which make them want to believe a certain thing rather than wanting to believe whatever is true. Okay? The emotional pulls, generally speaking, seem solvable by people becoming more self-aware and more satisfied in their lives, while the uh, reasoning pulls seem solvable by simply teaching people how reasoning can work, which is a field which is fairly closely related to artificial intelligence anyway, and to statistics, etc. So the scientists who are most promising are likely to already have a lot of the uh, prerequisites. Well, it, it seems like, you know, historically, this hasn't worked when companies get involved. Uh, as an example, 25 years ago, uh, DuPont introduced uh, a, fung- a fungicide called Benomil, which was really effective in that it, it killed it killed maybe 98% of, uh, of all fungus, but the other 2% had massive mutation in directions that would never have happened naturally. And we're actually dealing with that from a health perspective now, even though this isn't that well known. But the scientists at DuPont and in the regulatory side of things actually knew that this would cause massive mutation. But at the same time, there was this press to do it. So we've created some sort of X-Men series of mutated molds. I feel like this sort of thing can continue to happen where you get a profit motive mixed with this this thing. And what's going to happen there without any kind of regulatory framework on these companies? And not that I'm a fan of any any of the current regulatory frameworks. They don't work and, and they're gameable and they're they're purchasable in most countries. But is, is there really a way out of that? I actually think there is. I think that a lot of it has to – my solution involves to a really significant degree, as I say, unpacking this word scientist – which is what I was talking about before. So to a significant degree, businesses and government tend to look at science, scientists as being something like commodity. You know, 500 pounds of grain and three barrels of oil and two research papers. <laughs> you know, and um, that doesn't actually seem to match very well to the process that generates long-term technological and intellectual progress. So... But I basically think, you know, Dave, you've probably noticed that some scientists are overweight. And you've also kind of noticed that you can use science to not be overweight. So there's no very good excuse for that, right? So you're saying don't trust a fat scientist? Is that what I'm hearing? No, I'm not saying don't trust a fat <laughs> scientist. Not quite. But what, what, what I'm saying is help scientists to lose weight. But it's not just lose weight. It's a general thing of encourage the development of a community of people who are using very rigorous methods collectively to improve their lives. Like right now, you have people like yourself or Tim Ferriss doing work in a, basically in a vacuum. You don't publish online all of your data. You don't seek outside collaboration, you don't have peers in any serious sense, as far as I can tell. And you still manage to produce results that outperform whole scientific communities just by actually using science when they're not. So my model tends to be this. Whatever you are doing, the best scientists in most fields could learn to do 
in not that long a period of time. And they don't need to learn how to do it just themselves. They also need to collaborate effectively and form communities. But the communities doing it do not need to be very large. If there were 100 people doing vaguely what you're doing, sharing this information, discussing it with one another, with teams of fairly neutral people trying out the things that they were all doing, and um, reporting results in a common standardized format that was designed to, uh, with a good modern knowledge of how information works, it doesn't seem like it should take terribly long to um, figure out canonical solutions to a variety of health and wellness problems, uh, and then to a variety of interpersonal, interpersonal, economic, whatever other sort of problems that people want. My basic attitude is that a person's life ought to be, it ought to be, it took a certain amount of engineering work to figure out how to go from a Model T to a, you know, 57 Chevy or whatever, okay? It took a certain amount of work, and we can quantify how much engineering work went into that. And the gap between a Model T and whatever the best car in 1908 or 1914 was is just a joke compared to the gap between like a Model T and a 57 Chevy. And it basically seems to me that the gap between one person's life and another person's life today is probably a joke compared to the sorts of lives that people could build for themselves if there were similar amounts of essentially engineering and design work going into analytically vigorous lifestyle optimization. So essentially, my, um, my solution to irresponsible profit-driven progress is basically create tools that people who want to use can use and that most or many or most smart people will use that allow them to solve all of their personal problems so that they're um, not irresponsible, not blind, self-willingly blind, but because they're not actually motivated by these profits they're being offered, because they already have all the money they want, because they are basically um, choosing lives that they want. If you look at how difficult it is to get a, to make a major new discovery, and if you look at how difficult it is to become rich, it's just a joke. The problem is not that scientists are bought, but that they're so cheap in a sense. I hear what you're saying there. And it's interesting to me that a, a good number of, of very wealthy people at some point reach the, oh, I'd like to get into life extension sort of thing. Um, you have a, a good number of them who've, who've done the Alcor, you know, freeze your head or freeze your body so you can hopefully be revived later. And you also have even guys like, like Larry Ellison, who is kind of well-known for really being into to health and life extension and anti-aging. Uh, I've run an anti-aging nonprofit that's been around for almost 20 years in Silicon Valley. For about the last four or five years, I've been a chairman or a board member or president. Uh, it's called the Silicon Valley Health Institute now, and it used to be called the Smart Life Forum. And it seems to me like most of the time, someone out there who's spent their life focusing on a specific aging problem or health problem already has an answer. 
not I'm not talking about you know genetic things that are just being discovered, but generally, oh, you've got cancer. Here's five different ways that you can you can fix it. But unfortunately, none of them are accepted by you know, dogmatic science with a capital S. To the right. point that having talked with you know the guys who give the IVs and have medical degrees that are under attack from you know, from regulatory authorities. I have a pretty high degree of confidence that they're not just crazy people and that they're actually doing what they say they're doing. So there's something else going on there. There's the citizen scientists, biohacker guys like Tim Ferriss and me and and really hundreds of others in the quantified self movement now, but getting the data out there. Well, and I mean, I've looked at the quantified self movement and I'm going to challenge that. Oh, cool. There, I'm going to say that there's citizen scientists like you and Tim Ferriss and Seth Roberts and that's almost it. There are a lot of people who are kind of dabbling, etc. But if you look at the absolute quantity of output, those three people probably out, you know, exceed everyone else combined. And then the next ten people probably also exceed everyone else combined. Um, you know, a you've got point. a really, really, really small number of people who are doing this vigorously and well and in large quantities. And what, I, what I'm sort of suggesting is, if we had 20 MIT and Harvard professors doing this in a kind of club or whatever forum, doing what you and Tim and I guess to some degree Seth do, if you had um, 20 MIT and Harvard professors doing that, they would probably get a lot farther than you guys have quite quickly. But even more so, they would create a strong signal because one person is an anecdote, a bunch of people doing something systematically is data. And once they had this strong signal, this could pull in a lot more people from their local communities. And pretty soon, lots of the professors at MIT and Harvard would be doing this, and everyone could see how much better they looked and more physically dominant and self-satisfied in various ways and how much more energy they had for their work. And um, I, I think that that's happening to a certain extent. Uh, Steve Omohundro, who's one of the early guys who was involved in the creation of, uh, of Mathematica uh, and who is you know, a relatively well-known AI researcher, um, has been I like on... Steve. The I know him. You know Steve, okay, so he's been on the Bulletproof Diet for, for a little while, and you know I, I saw him three months after he first went on it, and he said, Dave, I just lost 50 pounds, and I haven't exercised at all, and, like, and I love this Bulletproof Coffee thing. And people are noticing that because you know, he's, a, he's a great guy, and he's, he's well-known in these circles, especially around self-aware machines. And so I, I kind of think that, that just that leading by example, and it's one of the reasons even the Bulletproof Executive blog exists is that, you know, I was a 300-pound guy who was having cognitive dysfunction and being a successful entrepreneur, and I said, I have to fix this for personal reasons, but I, I felt compelled to share this and actually to build the data, which is why the forum is up and all that. But I, I feel like that leading by example and just getting enough of a critical mass for any scientific discovery like, like these sorts of things that Tim and, and Seth and I are talking about, once enough people see it, it somehow crosses the chasm and then it becomes something that at least scientists can look at without having their funding pulled. Is, is that yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually interested in scientists looking at, at it without their funding being pulled. I'm interested in scientists just freaking doing it for themselves. <laughs> Amen. Finding, out, finding out that their lives are better and then doing more of it, not just in the domains of weight loss or muscle development, but in the domains of optimizing personal relationships, optimizing their incomes, 
doing all of the other things that you might expect people to do. And it really looks like after a couple of years of doing that, they don't need the job at their pump. <laughs> they don't need the funding, you know. They are, they're already friends with Bill Gates and Larry Ellison, as you say. Why are they writing NIH grants, except that they're too socially inept to ask their friends for, uh, for money in a way that was not socially erosive? I definitely think you're onto something there. And this has to do with something that, that I see a lot in the, the medical fields and both and in the science fields, even where people who are really good at science are oftentimes, and now I'm being a bit of a generalist here, but they're oftentimes just not trained in the techniques of going out and asking for money or in how to represent right. their ideas to someone who only has a half hour, but has a billion dollars. Right. Well, I, I'm, not <laughs> saying that, I'm not saying that they should be pitching their ideas, selling them. I'm saying quite literally there is this network that already exists built around things like TED and the Summit Series and Food Camp and whatever. Mm-hmm. There is this network that already exists that contains within it hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And it also contains within it thousands, but only thousands, of really A-list scientists, because there only are thousands of really A-list scientists. And the um, currently, although the network largely consists of talking about and getting excited by their projects and the potential that these projects have, the funding for these projects is coming from NIH rather than from the people who they go to parties with. And meanwhile, Gates is trying to fund science through the NIH-style approach you know, doing the antimalarial vaccines. You know, uh, the... What I'm basically saying is I think that the bureaucracy of contemporary science and business is sufficiently inefficient that if people were to build competing institutions, the early adopters of those competing institutions could become so wealthy and so otherwise independent that these basically dehumanizing forces, like uh, various fear motives that shut people's minds down rather than looking at the possibility that they should have to uh, stand up for something, these influences would just not weigh as hard on them, not weigh as heavily, and they could ignore them easily. That that makes great sense, and I I don't think I could argue with anything you just said there. Cool. Well, I'd love to... uh, work with you on trying to make that sort of thing happen. But I'm, my current method for doing so that essentially evolved out of my desire to do this is this company, Personalized Medicine. So I've gotten together with the founders of Skype and Overstock.com as my CEO and CTO. I founded the company and established myself as Chief Science Officer. And now I have, you know, 27 patients and the head of the American Academy of Private Physicians and the American Academy of Genetic Counselors and about a dozen employees. And we're kind of doing the thing that you were talking about, going through the information that's already out there uh, for kind of private clientele to try to work out what the literature actually says and sell its outputs. So I think that my basic reason for doing it this way is that people are much more likely to use information that they pay for 
And, well, in general, I prefer a for-profit structure over a non-profit structure. I think there are a lot of sound reasons for favoring it. But since you're apparently running a Silicon Valley startup that has been gathering this data from the literature, I'm sure there's a lot of possibility for us to collaborate. The major, the major concerns that I have are that it's clear to me that most of these organizations tend not to have a high enough standard of analytical rigor to reliably distinguish between um, reliable and unreliable materials. But by gathering the ideas, gathering the possibilities, gathering suggested targets of focus, they've done a huge early step raising hypotheses. And I would also like to talk to people who are involved in them about what would constitute adequate analytical rigor to distinguish pretty reliably the valid from uh, non-valid claims. It, it sounds to me like, like we should definitely get you uh, on stage at the Silicon Valley Health Institute, where we usually have about 100 people show up. Um, every month there's a meeting, but 100 people show up who are really into anti-aging, health, uh, and wellness, uh, people who are more likely to participate in a study uh, or people who've been really reading research and actually are bringing it up. And, and we have a half-hour section where anyone can, can talk about what they're researching and ask for help from the audience, which includes sure. medical professionals and researchers as well as just you know, biohackers like me. It'd be really interesting to have you come in and make a presentation about this. We would kit it on video, and we can, of course, put it up on the side as well. But you know, mobilizing the, the cream of the crop of, of people who are really working on fixing stuff out of enlightened self-interest might be the path to go down. Yes, that's, that's the path that I want to go down. I feel that you've got a community. There's got to be people in that community who are quite good. There's got to be a lot of hypotheses in that community that are good. I'm looking to basically hire people and scale this. I'm basically hoping... So what you guys in the SVHI have been doing for 20 years, basically, I'm trying to create a profession. I'm trying to professionalize that, so I create a firm that where people can work and build billable hours and get kind of upper middle class, you know, law firm, consulting firm style incomes by doing this sort of research and checking it over awesome. and actually delivering it. Yeah. That is simply awesome. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, and this is also for people who are listening, Ralph Moss has a website called cancerdecisions.com. And this is one of the earliest examples I've seen of this, where Ralph, who's a medical professional, goes out and does extensive research on each type of cancer and ranks every treatment you can think of for it, including crazy alternatives. We've talked a lot about how funding influences how people perceive science, and one of the largest sources of funding is the military. It seems a lot of, where it seems pretty much every new magazine coming out has a picture of like a robot machine on the cover. Do you ever see something like this actually happening where we have uh, maybe killer robots or something or self-aware uh, machines? And do you ever see this happening maybe where iPhones or do you ever see this happening in a garage? Maybe somebody tinkering with an iPhone or some other device making it possibly damaging? It seems to me that robots are real and are becoming ubiquitous. The 2020s are going to be a really big transition in terms of robotics. Like, there's so much stuff that is 
awesome now, laboratory grade, but not reliable enough to actually, you know, be a good, you know, purchase. But where qualities of manufacturing are improving, price of manufacturing is improving, and it seems very likely that a continuation of the last couple decades of robotics progress for another couple decades will produce a mostly robotic military and probably mostly robotic pretty much everything, not just militaries, manufacturing, you know, lots of different fields, really. Surgery, police, driving, trucking, shipping, boxing, whatever. That was one question. Once you have lots of robots out, if they are networked and controlled via the web, then hacking is totally a very real possibility. People could write viruses to cause them to behave badly or get in through back doors and control them directly. It really, you know, I'm not looking forward to some hacker taking over a fleet of UAVs and going over to bomb Libya. You know, I uh, don't know how likely that is, but it's the sort of thing that I would give a easily 20% probability to over the next 20 years. So um, you can also hack things with an iPhone, get into people's bank accounts, all of the stereotypical stuff, and that becomes more powerful. And as people, as people start to really put machinery in their bodies um, in the 2030s, late 2020s, then I expect the possibilities of security with that to be very serious as well. Although I think a lot of the time people just won't deal won't Even if you have an electronic connection to your um, heart rate controller, that electronic connection probably just won't be online because it would be a really bad idea to put that online. It's, so, uh, it's, um, it's gratifying to hear you talk <laughs> about security for things like this. I mean, I, I work in the computer security field you know, for one of the, the biggest companies uh, as an executive, and I, I think about this quite a lot where I, as we, we put the Internet of Things and then the Internet of People online, that the security and privacy implications get bigger and bigger and it, it's one of the easiest ways to, to really break stuff is, is to hack a system that you know, was designed without security in mind. And I, I hope that people who are designing artificial intelligence have at least basic security training, but I haven't necessarily always seen that in the past. Okay, so okay, that's an issue of robotics, an issue of security, an issue of cybernetics. When, we're talk, when I talk about artificial intelligence, I'm really almost exclusively talking about, I mean, I can talk about narrow artificial intelligence, and then we have data security issues, you know, but, and that's a, but that seems like a pretty separate issue from general artificial intelligence. When we talk about general artificial intelligence, I'm not very interested in whether it takes over the world by using robots or whether it just hacks people's bank accounts and hires mobsters to do it. You know, there are a lot of different ways of, you know, influencing the world if you can manipulate information. And the quality of your ro robots is probably not that important. You know, uh, it that, might be. That's uh, that's a really good point. And, uh, I, gosh, I'd like to explore that with you some more, but we're running out of time on the interview. Sure. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the Singularity Institute, like where they can learn more about it, or they can learn more about Less Wrong, uh, or contribute to your efforts? Basically, what, okay. what are the URLs or sites that they should be heading to if they so, want to learn more? The first place I would recommend, there is a blog, lesswrong.org, and 
it has a item, the less wrong sequences. If you just Google less wrong sequences, that will get you there. It's a long series of essays on critical thinking, human cognitive judgment, and mistakes, which is basically, to my mind, the groundwork that you should be going from if you want to try to uh, get things right where almost everyone else is wrong. Because if almost everyone else is wrong, then trying to figure things out the same way as they are just won't work. Yet at a more kind of inspirational, fun level, the same author wrote Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, which is the most reviewed fan fiction on the web, and which is supposed to teach critical thinking in conjunction with some other skills with a Harry Potter hook. Totally appropriate for four-year-olds, no, let's say seven-year-olds, totally appropriate for 70-year-olds. Uh, very fun read, even if you hate Harry Potter like I do. Um, <laughs> and the Singularity Institute website is very nice. It's undergoing some revision. The Singularity Summit videos are up online, and they go back six years. That's about, you know, a couple hundred hours of entertainment. Have It's really surprising to almost everyone what sort of things people are doing. So I recommend those videos a lot. And finally, there's the Future of Humanity Institute, which is our kind of Oxford collaboration. Uh, Nick Bostrom is a phenomenal philosopher. His papers are wonderful. So are Robin Hansen and Tyler Cohen at the George Mason University, who are part of the economics department. Future of Humanity Institute is at the philosophy department. But there's a lot of overlap in relevant skills. We will include links to all of those on uh, on the show notes so that our readers right. can come to the site and, and find you there. And we'll also post a full transcript of this, uh, usually within a week after we post the audio, so people can actually search this uh, for things that are relevant as well. Uh, Michael Vassar, thanks again for representing the Singularity Institute on our radio show today. Thank you, Dave. I'm glad we spoke. If you enjoyed our show today, you can help us out by leaving a positive ranking on iTunes. You can come to our bulletproofexec.com forum and ask some questions or answer some questions and you know, join the discussion. You can sign up for our email list. And most of all, if you're looking for some super high-end coffee, literally, this is I'm just so passionate about this, and it's been uh, a labor of love for years to, to reliably get good coffee. It's here, it's available, and it costs about what good coffee costs everywhere else. So give it a try if you haven't yet. I personally appreciate it, and I would love to hear feedback from people about how it tastes and about how they feel after they try good beans that don't have toxins like the 92% we just talked about. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. 
This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.